Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, that is a, a beautiful hymn that sometimes gets lost, and sometimes we don't recognize the value and the meaning. And we hope during this Christmas season to unpack some of that in ways where there may be things that you have done for years or decades that you don't even realize all that is there, all the meat. We're here on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, and, and it really is the start of the Christmas season. In some traditions, this is called Advent, the, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And, and it's, it's hectic, it's busy, it's stressful, it's crazy, exciting, fun, depressing, and a whole lot more all wrapped together. You know, one of the things I love about this season is, is the music. I grew up in a time when we, in school, still sang the Christmas carols. We sang, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. We sang Joy to the World. We sang Silent Night. Those carols were a part of not just what we did on Sunday, but they were a part of Monday and, and all throughout our week. And it was a wonderful experience. They were, they were everywhere. The stores weren't afraid to play the carols, and we heard them, and we sang them, and, and they taught us, and they reminded us. And, and yet, as we know, it's not that way so much anymore. And there's, yet there's still a lot we can gain and enjoy and learn in carols. And so we're going to focus on them in these weeks leading up to Christmas. And we've started with a carol like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and some of the, the meanings or, or, or teaching behind it. And I realized something as I was looking at all this and thinking about this series and kind of preparing for it, that is there a difference between a Christmas hymn, a Christmas carol, and a Christmas song? I mean, sometimes we use the words almost interchangeably. Um, and the truth is, as best as I can tell, there, there's no absolute distinction, at least between hymns and carols. We tend to make a distinction between hymns and carols on one side and songs on the other, that hymns and carols have a distinct Christian message about the birth of Jesus, whereas the songs are more about the season, and, and really don't have that message, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Jingle Bells, things like that, that we enjoy, we sing at this time of year, but we would call those Christmas songs. But when we try to make the distinction between hymns and carols, it gets a, a little more fuzzy. Uh, hymns, in just kind of a broad sense, tend to be more focused on theological truth. They expressed, uh, were expressly intended to be used in worship settings, in other words, in a church. And often, they were intended to be sung by trained musicians, like, like the, the wonderful volunteers and staff that we have up here that, that sing that. And they were sung in ways that, in fact, most people couldn't sing. Most people couldn't read. Most people couldn't write. And, and so they didn't have a way of learning the songs, and they were technically difficult. And though they were a great way of teaching, they weren't necessarily a, a great tool for the, the most people to use. Many of them were even based on the Psalms. So carols come along, and carols, the story behind the carols is a little complex. The word carol probably comes from the French word carol, or the Latin word coming before it of carula, and that actually means circular dance. It doesn't have religious origins so much as it has secular origins. It was literally a dance form in which the participants held hands and danced and moved in a circle singing a song at, some, at festivities throughout the year. Um, these carulas actually predate Christianity and were often secular in nature. 
But sometime between the, the second and fourth centuries uh, after Christ, uh, Christianity began to adopt the form as a distinctly Christian form of music, focusing on the, primarily the birth of Jesus. And yet they were still festive in nature. They were joyful. They were intended to be sung as a celebration. They were be sung by everybody out, out in the community. They weren't intended to be restricted to the church, but were to be sung out in the community. And whereas the hymns were often sung by the professionals, the carols were sung by everybody else. They tended to have uh, memorable choruses repeated over and over again. That's how you and I often remember a song is because of a chorus. And so even if a, a singer had to sing part of the song, the chorus, the congregation or the people could join in and sing it out in the community. In the 12th century, St. Francis of Assisi it, it made a change because up until that point with the Roman Empire, the, the language was Latin. And so whether you were in Italy or you were somewhere else, everything was still in Latin. But Assisi Francis said, let's sing them in the, 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 the language of the people, wherever it is. And so the songs started to become translated. The songs of the people became translated into the, the songs, the, the words that everybody could do. They were popular. By the 1400s, carols were being sung in England by wassailers. Um, now, I, I confess to you, I, I thought wassail was simply a drink. Um, maybe that's what you thought, maybe it's not what you thought, but wassailers were actually people who entertained in the streets by visiting houses, caroling, singing for a reward of gifts of food or drink. They were typically poorer people who would go to the homes of the wealthy and they would sing songs like, we wish you a Merry Christmas, songs like that, uh, as a way of, of enticing or encouraging the, the more wealthy in the community to give them gifts on Christmas Eve, such as figgy pudding. So some of that kind of starts to arise, and then by the 1800s, particularly in America, Christmas carols were being widely sung in churches as well as out in the community. And we know by 1843, when Charles Dickens wrote his famous A Christmas Carol, that carols were then kind of the norm. They were sung by everybody. Christmas carols for centuries have been a way for all of us to remember and celebrate Christmas in its true meaning. It was, not, it was not music that was expressly intended to be sung in church, although it always had a Christian message. It always told the story of Christ. It always was intended to be, though, something that we could carry with us, that we, the non-professional singers, as well as the professionals, could sing together to claim the good news. We, whether we sing them in traditional ways or up-tempo or even new, car new carols, they're an invaluable part of how we get ready for Christmas and claiming that we have good news in Jesus Christ and that no matter what the enemy, the devil, throws our way, he cannot take away our joy any more than he could keep Jesus in the grave. So over these next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the common themes in the carols that many of us have grown up with that are still a part of our Christian landscape and why they still matter a great deal to us today. And one of the significant themes that runs through some of the Christmas carols, like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or earlier in the service we said, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus, is this idea of looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. We, we think of Christmas as looking back 
to when he was born, celebrating something that happened 2,000 years ago. But this is saying, let's not just look back, let's look forward. Why do we need to look forward? As I started working on this message a couple of three weeks ago, it was right after the bombings and terrorism attacks in Paris. It seems like there has been hardly a day go by where there hasn't been somewhere in the world horrible, horrific acts against human beings. We, we see all these things going on around us. We see people getting hurt. We see, we see in our own lives people who aren't being fair to others. We feel overwhelmed and, and, and we see people hurting each other. We see sometimes children who are abused. And we start to wonder, is there any hope? Especially if I'm a Christian, what is there for me? You know, what do I have? How can I hang on in the midst of this? Is there any hope? Which was not so different from the the centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus in Israel. In, In the centuries before his birth, there were very few years when the Jews uh controlled their own destiny. There were very few years in which they had a king or they had a leader. Most of those times, they were under the leadership of the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. And so in that time, the Jews suffered. They suffered not being their own people and being at the whim and the will of others. They suffered burdensome taxes. Many of them literally lived day to day as day laborers, and and they were increasingly burdened by more and more rules tacked on to the, to the law that God had given them when what we call the Old Testament. And so there was this increasingly deep longing to get out of the mess that they found themselves in. And yet the Jews had hope. For there had been prophets, even before, going further back, telling of the coming of a king, anointed one. That's how they, they designated their kings. They anointed them, which... The word for that is Messiah. That's the Hebrew word who would be from the line of their greatest king, King David, who would would help them conquer their enemies and establish a kingdom in which there was peace and there there was freedom. And so they looked forward to this time of of another king, of God backing this king to make all the wrongs that they were suffering through right, to restore the kingdom. And so as as Brandon mentioned, we read in Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. Therefore, virgin, the child, it's a miraculous birth. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Imagine the hope of words like that as you're in the midst of all of this going on. You don't have control of your lives. You don't control the, the world around you. And, and you feel helpless and hopeless. And yet God, the word is that God himself is preparing to do something. That God himself will come into their midst, will be with them. And the prophet Isaiah had more to say to, to the people who felt that their world closing in around them. He said in Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walk in darkness, that's how it feels sometimes, isn't it, when the world seems to be closing in on us, when it doesn't seem like there's much hope. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, the kingdom, and its people will rejoice. 
For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. This picture of a, of a coming kingdom that will put an end to all this. And then he goes on to say, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. The passionate commitment. God is committed to doing this. Isaiah proclaimed to them a message of hope. And seven long centuries later, as they suffered under Roman rule, a child was born, conceived of a virgin, a son from the line of David himself. And even though that night in which he was born, a heavenly chorus sang the good news, almost no one on earth noticed except his parents and a few shepherds and later some wise men. And for another three decades, life kind of went on the way it had been going. But about 30 years later, a man appeared out in the wilderness along the Jordan River, and he announced that the prophecies of this Messiah, this one to come, this king, were about to begin to come true. In Matthew 3, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is not now some far off thing. Now it is coming into their midst. And Jesus came among them. He collected his own followers. He performed miracles. He healed people. And he preached that not only was the kingdom of God coming near, he said the kingdom of God is now among them. That something was happening in their midst. And three years later, as he entered Jerusalem, the historic capital of the Jews, the, the land where their, the home where their king would reside, the people shouted his praises as he entered the, the town on what we call Palm Sunday as their coming king. Hosanna, uh, praise to the one who comes in the name of the king, Hosanna. And yet only a few days later, they were crying for his crucifixion. For he had not led an army to defeat the Romans. He, he turned out he wasn't some great military strategist. In fact, he couldn't even defend himself from his captors. How could this man who could not even save himself, that's what the, the Jews said as he hung on the cross, look at him. He, he claims to be the Messiah, but he cannot even save himself. How could he save them? How? Who was this? It was nobody. And yet three days later, the tomb was found empty. And those first disciples met the risen Christ. That is, the risen Messiah. The Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one or the king. And Christ is the Greek word for the same thing, the anointed one or king. They met the risen Christ in person. And Jesus had done 
what no one had ever done before. No one. It's not that he had defeated a national army, but he had defeated an even greater army. He defeated sin and death. No one had ever done that. No one had ever had the power over death. No one could conquer it, look it in the face, and laugh. And through the coming of his spirit, he gave his followers the power to continue that mission of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And he promised that there would be a day when he would return. And and, and, and in that day, it would no longer just be a defeat of sin and death, but then it would be a defeat of all enemies, of all evil, for all time, and to usher in a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth. And, and, and Jesus told parables about this and, and how these days were coming. His apostles wrote often in their, their work, their letters about his return. If you use the Life Journal reading plan in Second Thess- First and Second Thessalonians, which is today's reading, it talks about him returning with a, with a shout of the trumpet and all this amazing things starting to happen. And then the apostle John gave a vivid account of what that day would be like in his work called Revelation, the last work of the New Testament. See, the first time Jesus came, He initiated the kingdom of God within us. He came to change our hearts. He began to change individuals, persons, one at a time, to to enable each of us to come to that conclusion for ourselves, to choose him, to make him our savior, but also to make him our Lord. Not just someone that we agreed was a famous person or had value, but someone that we, we believed we needed to obey, we needed to follow, we needed to allow him to rule in our lives. He came to change our hearts before he would restore the kingdom fully. But he will return. That's the message that runs throughout the New Testament. And he will return to bring this kingdom to all of creation, not just simply into our hearts, but he will right all that has been wrong and all the enemies of goodness and all that that is unfair and all that has destroyed creation. All of that will be wiped out. And there will be no question of his authority power and of his authority. There will be no denying him. There will be no ambivalence about him, no apathy about him when he returns. Though some today say Jesus is Lord. Jesus warned. He said, some of you who say, Lord, Lord, he said, essentially, you don't really mean it. You simply say it. And when I return on that day, it will not go well. He will divide the sheep from the goats. For the, for the, he calls us to not just simply call him Lord, but to make him Lord, to live as Lord. And Lord means that he is in charge, that we follow him, we obey him, we seek him, we live for him each and every day. That is so radically different from how Christianity is often depicted. It is not mamby-pamby, wimpy Christianity. It is hardcore stuff. It is in-your-face stuff. It is challenging. It's something that the world doesn't want and cannot stand. And yet the world will answer. For The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all the names. That at the name of Jesus, listen, at the name of Jesus, he says, every knee should bow. Every knee in heaven, on earth, under the earth, the evil, the demons, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. That, that Jesus is Lord, that's the earliest, as, as far as we know, creed or statement of belief seen here in the last verse of that, that passage. In, in a time when, when the Romans demanded that, that you could believe almost anything, but you had to profess Caesar is Lord, Caesar is in charge, Caesar is the one at all. It was radical, it was dangerous to profess that Jesus is Lord. Making that profession of faith could be life and death. And yet, today we are still called to say that. And we say it sometimes in passing. We say it without even thinking about what it means, without even living anywhere close to the way Jesus calls us to live and, in fact, be Lord of all, particularly Lord of our lives. And so there are a lot of people who aren't sure, and they see the witness of those who claim to be Christians, and they don't see anything compelling, and they don't, they don't understand, and they never say it themselves. But the promise of Scripture is that when Jesus returns, every soul will confess Jesus is Lord. Some will do it out of joy. Some will say, yes, he has returned. All is being made right. Some will say it because they are forced to finally concede the truth that there will be no turning back. And for those, it will not be a happy time. For there will be a great judgment and eternal justice will finally become reality and all that has been wrong will be made right and evil and terror and destruction will be doomed and destroyed for all time and ambivalence and apathy will be defeated and gone forever. But for those of us who, who truly believe Jesus is Lord, so that living our lives around that proclamation in truth is something we do every day. We don't fear his return. We don't think this is something bad. We welcome him to come to release the captive, to set people free, to destroy evil, sin, and death, and, and as one of our carols said, to reign in us forever. Jesus told parables encouraging us to be ready, to be prepared to be watching and waiting. And the early church believed he could return at any time. When he didn't come immediately, they found that it was so easy to become complacent with their faith. And they often gave it only lip service. They did it because it was the thing to do. It is hard who live in the in-between time, between the now and the not yet, especially as we see forces of evil so destructive in our time. We see the damage done. We see lives destroyed. We see it on an international basis, a national, but we see it in our own lives as well. As we experience hurt within our families, as we experience abuse, as we experience people who lie to us, and we, in fact, find ourselves doing some of the very same things. And in the midst of all that, we tend to forget the hope that we have, the promise that we're called to truly believe that just as he came for the first time to initiate his kingdom, to begin his new work. He will come again. And when he comes again, all will be made right. And the Bible uses all kinds of metaphors. It talks about the, the, the groom and the bride. And one of the places the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapter 13, he uses the image of dawn. And I love that image because 
last week, I, uh, I was with my, my, my children. We were out hunting in West Texas. And we get out there very, very early before dawn to be in our places so we don't disturb the, the deer. And, and one morning, Sunday morning of a week ago, it was really cold. In fact, the thermometer in my car said 18 degrees. It was really cold. And we're out there, and I drop my kids off at the blind, and I go park my car way off somewhere, and I walk back. Now, let me tell you, the moon had already set. There were some gorgeous stars, but it was dark. And you're walking in this dark cloud, and you don't know what is three feet beside you, three feet behind you, anything. And it's easy for your mind to start running and thinking all these things that might be waiting for you right there. Finally, I, I, I made my way back to the stand, and I got into the stand, and we're sitting there. It's 18 degrees. It's cold. It just seems like the night is never going to end. It's going on and on. And finally, I look out toward the east, and there's an orangish maroon color. An, an image, an impression. It's just barely there. It's just the hint. And a couple of minutes later, I look back, and it's, it's growing. And it's still dark, and I still can't see my hands. I can't see anything around me. But when I finally saw that dawn beginning to come, I knew that it was only a matter of time until the sun would be up. And the light would shine everywhere. And all those places that seemed so dark and foreboding would be revealed for what they really were, as powerless against me and the light. And that picture to me is so powerful that this light is coming, it is inevitable, and we need to know there is a dawn that has already begun. And so Paul writes, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. And isn't it always the darkest before the dawn? And yet it can feel that way, but it says the night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living, because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those first hints of dawn and light begin to break into our world on that very first Christmas. It's no wonder that a star played a key role as it began to shine light into that darkness. It's no wonder that the Bible proclaims that Jesus is the light of the world. But Jesus also said that we who follow him are also light of the world. It's important that our lives reflect not the darkness that is around us, not the hopelessness that many of us see and even experience, but that, that we live in, but the light we know is coming by living as Jesus lived, as if he's right here with us, as if he is walking with us, as if we are clothed with his presence, as Romans said, as if Emmanuel is in our midst and through the Spirit he is for every follower of Jesus Christ. 
He is with us. He is walking beside us. He is in us. And so in this season when we tend to look back and, and yes, celebrate his first coming and make a big deal out of it, it's important to also remind ourselves that his birth was not just an event in history, not just something that happened 2,000 years ago, but also it is a promise for our future. It is not just the past, but it looks forward to what is to come of the hope we have to look forward, to proclaim to ourselves and to the world around us that Jesus is coming back. We need this reminder so that the grind of day-to-day life doesn't beat us down, doesn't work us over, doesn't destroy us. We need to claim and proclaim that, that terror and evil while they have a hand in the world today, do not have the last word. Jesus is coming back, and we long for his coming. Come, O oh come, Emmanuel. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Make right that which has been made wrong. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we live decent lives for all to see, Scripture says, helping those in need. Standing up for the least, the last, and the lost. Seeking those who are far from God and telling them not just about our God, but that in our God through Jesus Christ, there is hope. We are watching. We are waiting for good news. As we sing, come, thou long expected Jesus. As we sing, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, God with us. May what we sing be real in our lives to ransom the captive, to release those held in bondage. Our longing for him in some ways isn't so different from what the Jews hoped for, except we know who he is. We have a much clearer picture of our Messiah, of who this king is. His name is Jesus. He came before, and this man who promised that he would not only die on a cross ahead of time, but he said, I will also rise. No other human being has ever been able to predict, much less actually be resurrected. If Jesus can do that, if Jesus can do what he said he would do, if he can come back from the dead, then I believe that we can trust him when he says he is coming again. And that what this world has to show us, the hurts, the cruelty, the indifference of this world, while it may sap our spirit if we let it, we can also watch and wait and proclaim that Jesus is coming back. That what we see in the world around us is not the final word. We do not have to let that define how you and I live our lives, how we go through our days. We renew that promise in ourselves at this time of year, to give us hope, to get us through the evil, the injustices that we see all around us. We don't like it, but ultimately, we know that what we see does not have the final word. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, including the enemy, including evil, including the destructive people in this world, that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus told us to go, therefore, and make disciples, to believe in the hope of this season, to inspire and use that to inspire the hardest hearts to reconsider who Jesus really is. 
It's, it's why we offer special services on Christmas Eve and throughout this season where we boldly proclaim Jesus' birth and, and the hope that we have because we believe, we know he will come again. And what we experience today is not the final word, does not have the final say. It does not have to determine how you and I live our lives. Our, our arts ministry is prepared, it's preparing a CD this year of some of the carols that we're singing in this season. And we'll have it on a form probably next week that you can use, that you can hand to friends that will have the date of our and the information of our Christmas Eve services. We've also got out in the lobby these Christmas at Gateway bookmarks of how to read starting on December 1st to read this good news all through the month of December as a daily reminder of the hope and the promise we have. We don't just sit around. We deck the halls. We prepare ourselves. We get involved in what God is doing because Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, Lord of our lives, Lord of how we live. And in this season when people are more open to Christianity and Jesus Christ than perhaps any other season of the year, we make hay while the sun shines. We do all that we can for we know he is coming. It's incredible to me, John, who wrote the the. the his incredible revelation of this final victory wrote also of this coming. And, and we join John with his final words of, in the Bible. The, the very last verse of the very last book says this. He, talking about Jesus, who is the faithful witness to all these things, says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, which means let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. Those are the last words of Scripture. Come. Would you stand and sing those with us?
God, we wait. We wait. You're coming. You're coming soon. So we, we wait. wait. We wait for you. God, we, we wait. wait. You're coming church ready for his return. Live in that expectancy, that hope, that power. Go from this place and live as if Jesus is coming, for he is. He is. He is coming. Praise God. God bless you. See you next time. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.